Chapter Three, Part One, of the Guns of Shiloh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Guns of Shiloh by Joseph A. Altscheller, Chapter Three, The Telegraph Station, Part One. The darkness to the north was suddenly split apart by a solid sheet of flame. Dick, by the light, saw many men on horseback and others on foot, bridle rein over arm. It was well for the seven hundred boys that they had pressed themselves against the solid earth. A sheet of bullets swept toward them. Most passed over their heads, but many struck upon bones and flesh, and cries of pain rose from the lines of men lying along the railroad track. The seven hundred pulled trigger and fired at the flash. They fired so well that Dick could hear southern horses neighing with pain and struggling in the darkness. He felt sure that many men, too, had been hit. At least no charge came. The seven hundred shouted with exultation, and leaping to their feet, prepared to fire a second volley. But the swift command of their officers quickly put them down again. Don't forget the other Confederate column to the south of us, whispered Whitley. They didn't fire at us for fear their bullets would pass over our heads and strike their own comrades. For the same reason they must have dropped back a little in order to avoid the fire of their friends. Their volley will come from an angle about midway between our left and rear. And just as he spoke the last words, the rifles flashed at the surmised angle, and again the bullets beat among the young troops or swept over their heads. A soldier was killed only a few feet from Dick. The boy picked up his rifle and ammunition, and began to fire whenever he saw the flash of an opposing weapon. But the fire of both Confederate columns ceased in a minute or two, and not a shot, nor the sound of a single order, came out of the darkness. But Dick, with his ear to the soft earth, could hear the crush of hoofs in the mud, and with a peculiar ability to discern whence sound came, he knew that the force on the left and rear was crossing the railroad track in order to join their comrades on the north. He whispered his knowledge to Whitley, who whispered back, It's the natural thing for them to do. They could not afford to fight on in the darkness with two separate forces. The two columns would soon be firing into each other. Colonel Newcomb now gave an order for the men to rise and follow the railroad track, but also to fire at the flash of the rifles whenever a volley was poured upon them. He must not only beat off the southern attack, but also continue the journey to those points in the west where they were needed so sorely. Some of his men had been killed, and he was compelled to leave their bodies where they had fallen. Others were wounded, but without exception they were helped along by their comrades. Warner also had secured a rifle, with which he fired occasionally, but he and Dick, despite the darkness, kept near to Colonel Newcomb in order that they might deliver any order that he should choose to give. Sergeant Whitley was close to them. Dick presently heard the rush of water. What is that? he exclaimed. It's the little river that runs down the valley, replied Warner. There's a slope here, and it comes like a torrent. A bridge, or rather a trestle, is only a little further, and we've got to walk the ties if we reach the other side. They'll make their heaviest rush there, I suppose as beyond a doubt they're thoroughly acquainted with the ground. The northern troops left the track, which here ran along an embankment several feet high, 
and took shelter on its southern side. They now had an advantage for a while, as they fired from a breastwork upon their foes who were in the open. But the darkness, lit only by the flashes of the rifles, kept the fire of both sides from being very destructive, the bullets being sent mainly at random. Dick dimly saw the trestle work ahead of them, and the roaring of the little river increased. He did not know how deep the water was, but he was sure it could not be above his waist, as it was a small stream. An idea occurred to him, and he promptly communicated it to Colonel Newcomb. Suppose, sir, he said, that we ford the river just below the trestle. It will deceive them, and will be halfway across before they suspect the change. A good plan, Mr. Mason, said Colonel Newcomb. We'll try it. Word was quickly passed along the line that they should turn to the left as they approached the trestle, march swiftly down the slope, and dash into the stream. As fast as they reached the other side of the ford, the men should form up upon the bank there, and with their rifles cover the passage of their comrades. The skeleton work of the trestle now rose more clearly into view. The rain had almost ceased, and faint rays of moonlight showed through the rifts where the clouds had broken apart. The boys distinctly heard the gurgling rush of waters, and they also saw the clear bluish surface of the mountain stream. The same quickening of light disclosed the southern force on their right flank and rear, only four or five hundred yards away. Dick's hasty glance backward lingered for a moment on a powerful man on a white horse just in advance of the southern column. He saw this man raise his hand and then command the men to fire. He and twenty others, under the impulse of excitement, shouted to the regiment to drop down, and the northern lads did so. Most of the volley passed over their heads. Rising, they sent back a return discharge, and then the head of the columns rushed into the stream. Dick felt swift water whirling about him and tugging at his body, but it rose no higher than his waist, although foam and spray were dashed into his face. He heard all around him the splashing of his comrades and their murmurs of satisfaction. They realized now that they were not only able to retreat before a much superior force, but this same stream, when crossed, would form a barrier behind which they could fight two to one. The Confederate leader, whoever he might be, and Dick had no doubt that he was the redoubtable Turner Ashby, also appreciated the full facts, and he drove his whole force straight at the regiment. It was well for the young troops that part of them were already across, and under the skillful leadership of Colonel Newcomb, Major Hertford, and three or four old regular army sergeants, of whom the best was Whitley, were already forming in line of battle. Kneel, shouted the colonel, and fire over the heads of your comrades at the enemy. The light was still growing brighter. The rain came only in slight flurries. The clouds were trooping off towards the northeast, and the moon was out. Dick clearly saw that the black mass of the southern horsemen were wheeling down upon them. At least three hundred of the regiment were now upon the bank, and with fairly steady aim they poured a heavy volley into the massed ranks of their foe. Dick saw horses fall, while others dashed away riderless. But the southern line wavered only for a moment, and then came on again with many shouts. There were also dismounted men on either flank who knelt and maintained a heavy fire upon the defenders. The lads in blue were suffering many wounds, 
but a line of trees and underbrush on the western shore helped them lying there partly protected they loaded and pulled triggers as fast as they could while the rest of their comrades emerged dripping from the stream to join them the confederates brave as they were had no choice but to give ground against such strong defense and the minor colonel despite his reserve and his middle years gave vent to his exultation we can hold this line forever he exclaimed to his aides it's one thing to charge us in the open but it's quite another to get at us across a deep and rushing stream major hertford take part of the men to the other side of the railroad track and drive back any attempt at a crossing there lieutenant mason you and lieutenant warner go ahead and see what has become of the train you can get back here in plenty of time for more fighting dick and warner hurried forward following the line of the railroad their blood was up and they didn't like to leave the defense of the river but orders must be obeyed as they ran down the railroad track a man came forward swinging a lantern and they saw the tall gaunt figure of canby the chief engineer behind him the train stretched away in the darkness i guess that our men have forded the river and are holding the bank said canby do they need the train crew back there to help he spoke with husky eagerness dick knew that he was longing to be in the middle of the fight but that his duty kept him with the train no he replied the river bank and the road along its shore give us a great position for defense and i know we can hold it colonel newcomb didn't say so but perhaps you'd better bring the train back nearer us it's not our object to stay in this valley and fight but to go into the west is all clear ahead no enemy is there some of the brakemen have gone on a mile or two and they say the track hasn't been touched you tell colonel newcomb that I'm bringing the train right down to the battle line. Dick and Warner returned quickly to Colonel Newcomb, who appreciated Canby's courage and presence of mind. As the train approached, the four cannon were unloaded from the trucks and swept the further shore with shell and shrapnel. After a scattered fire, the southern force withdrew some distance, where it halted apparently undecided. The clouds rolled up again, the feeble moon disappeared, and the river sank into the dark. May I make a suggestion, Colonel Newcomb? said Major Hertford. Certainly. The enemy will probably seek an undefended ford much higher up, cross under cover of the new darkness, and attack us in heavy force on the flank. Suppose we get aboard the train at once, cannon and all, and leave them far behind. Excellent. If the darkness covers their movements, it also covers ours. Load the train as fast as possible, and see that no wounded are left behind. He gave rapid orders to all his officers and aides, and in fifteen minutes the troops were aboard the train again, the cannon were lifted upon the trucks, Canby and his assistants had all steam up, and the train, with its usual rattle and roar, resumed its flight into the west. Dick and Warner were in the first coach near Colonel Newcomb, ready for any commands that he might give. Both had come through the defense of the ford without injury, although a bullet had gone through Dick's coat without touching the skin. Sergeant Whitley, too, was unharmed, but the regiment had suffered. More than twenty dead were left in the valley for the enemy to bury. Despite all the commands and efforts of the officers, there was much excited talk in the train. Boys were binding up wounds of other boys, and were condoling with them. But on the whole they were exultant. Youth did not realize the loss of those who had been with them so little scattered exclamations came to dick we beat em off that time and we can do it again 
Lucky, though, we had that little river before us. Guess they'd have rode us right down with their horses if it hadn't been for that stream and its banks. Ouch! Don't draw that bandage so tight in my arm. It ain't nothing but a flesh wound. I hate a battle in the dark. Give me the good sunshine where you can see what's going on. My God, that you, Bill? I'm tremendous glad to see you. I thought you was lying still back there in the grass. Dick said nothing. He was in a seat next to the window, and his face was pressed against the rain-marked pane. The rifle that he had picked up and used so well was still clutched, grimed with smoke, in his hands. The train had not yet got up speed. He caught glimpses of the river behind which they had fought, and which had served them so well as a barrier. In fact, he knew that it had saved them. But they had beaten off the enemy. The pulses in his temples still throbbed from exertion and excitement. But his heart beat exultantly. The bitterness of Bull Run was deep, and it had lasted long, but here they were the victors. The speed of the train increased, and Dick knew that they were safe from further attack. They were still running among mountains, clad heavily in forest, but a meeting with the second southern force was beyond probability. The first had made a quick raid on information supplied by spies in Washington, but it had failed and the way was now clear. Ample food was served, somewhat late to the whole regiment. The last wounds were bound up, and Dick, having put aside the rifle, fell asleep at last. His head lay against the window, and he slept heavily all through the night. Warner in the next seat slept in the same way. But the wise old sergeant, just across the aisle, remained awake much longer. He was summing up, and he concluded that the seven hundred lads had done well. They were raw, but they were being whipped into shape. He smiled a little grimly as the unspoken words, whipped into shape, rose to his lips. The veteran of many an Indian battle foresaw something vastly greater than anything that had occurred on the plains. Whipped into shape. Why, in the mighty war that was gathering along a front of two thousand miles, no soldier could escape being whipped into shape or being whipped out of it. But the sergeant's own eyes closed after a while, and he too slept the sleep of utter mental and physical exhaustion. The train rumbled on, the faithful Canby in the first engine, aware of his great responsibility and equal to it. Not a wink of sleep for him that night. The darkness had lightened somewhat more. The black of the skies had turned to a dusky blue, and the bolder stars were out. He could always see the shining rails three or four hundred yards ahead, and he sent his train steadily forward at full speed, winding among the gorges and rattling over the trestles. The silent mountains gave back every sound in dying echoes, but Canby paid no heed to them. His eyes were always on the track ahead, and he too was exultant. He had brought the regiment through, and while it was on the train, his responsibility was not inferior to that of Colonel Newcomb. When Dick awoke, bright light was pouring in at the car windows, but the car was cold and his body was stiff and sore. His military overcoat had been thrown over him in the night, and Warner had been covered in the same way. They did not know that Sergeant Whitley had done that thoughtful act. Dick stretched himself and drew deep breaths. Warm youth! soon sent the blood flowing in a full tide through his veins, and the stiffness and soreness departed. He saw through the window that they were still running among the mountains. 
but they did not seem to be so high here as they were at the river by which they had fought in the night. He knew from his geography and his calculation of time that they must be far into that part of Virginia which is now West Virginia. There was no rain now, at least where the train was running, but the sun had risen on a cold world. Far up on the higher peaks he saw fine white mist, which he believed to be falling snow. Obviously it was winter here, and putting on the big military coat he drew it tightly about him. Others in the coach were waking up, and some of them, grown feverish with their wounds, were moving restlessly on their seats, where they lay protected by the blankets of their fellows. Dick now and then saw a cabin nestling in the lee of a hill, with a blue smoke rising from its chimney into the clear wintry air, and small and poor as they were, they gave him a singular sense of peace and comfort. His mind felt for a few moments a strong reaction from war and its terrors, but the impulse and the strong purpose that bore him on soon came back. The train rushed through a pass, and entered a sheltered valley a mile or two wide and eight or ten miles long. A large creek ran through it, and the train stopped at a village on its banks. The whole population of the village and all the farmers of the valley were there to meet them. It was a Union Valley, and by some system of mountain telegraphy, although there were no telegraph wires, news of the battle at the ford had preceded the train. "'Come, lads,' said Colonel Newcomb to his staff. "'Out with you. We're among friends here.' Dick and Warner were glad enough to leave the train. The air, cold as it was, was like the breath of heaven on their faces, and the cheers of the people were like the trump of fame in their ears. Pretty girls with their faces in red hoods or red comforters were there with food and smoking coffee. Medicines for the wounded, as much as the village could supply, had been brought to the train, and places were already made for those hurt too badly to go on with the expedition. End of chapter 3, part 1